to read two really interesting um, passages from the book of Ezekiel this morning. And um, very exciting. Our Bibles are back in front of you, and I would love you to be able to follow the passages with me this morning. Um, the first one is Ezekiel 43. Second one is Ezekiel 47. And for both of those, we will be reading verses 1 to 12. Now, if you can't remember who Ezekiel was, he was a priest. And just to give a bit of context to this uh, passage that we're living here, that we're that we're reading here this morning, Ezekiel lived about 600 years before the birth of Christ, and he lived during the time of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the fiercest king of the time. In fact, he um, pretty much conquered the whole of the known world in that area there, including Jerusalem, which he destroyed, and including Solomon's temple, which he destroyed. And as we know from other passages in the Bible, Solomon's temple was arguably the most impressive structure ever built here on earth. So with that in mind, um, let's have a read at the first passage, which is Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 12. And the heading is, God's glory returns to the temple. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Keba River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to my people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. 
Such is the law of the temple. Now just a couple of pages forward to Ezekiel 47. And again, we will be reading verse 1 to 12. The heading here is the river from the temple. Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was now knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Englaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their, food, their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Thank you. Thanks, Emil, and good morning, everyone. My name's Nathan, if I haven't met you. Uh, welcome, particularly if you're online watching this. It is good to have you tuning in as well. Shout out to my brother, John, at the back, who is doing the live stream. Love your work, mate. Let's pray as we get started. Lord God, we pray that we might submit ourselves to your scriptures this morning as we reflect on them. And we ask, Lord, that you might uplift us, that we might see wonderful things in your word together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Endings matter, don't they? Endings matter. Whether you're talking about the end of a thrilling novel 
or perhaps it's the end of a nail-biting auction. Could be the end of a semester and the final exam, or maybe it's just a long project at work. Whatever it is, in life, endings matter. Like the end of our building project out there. You know, when it comes to construction, it's the end that matters, isn't it? It's the end which is what it's all about. But of course, getting to the end is not always straightforward. Just talk to Tim Evans about that. The interesting thing about rebuilding is that it starts with rubble, doesn't it? You've got to get rid of the old building first. I wonder, anyone here remember what the demolition phase was like here at church? <laughs> I certainly remember the noise. That was behind three closed doors. <laughs> and you know, it wasn't just the noise, there was the dirt and the dust and the mess and the disruption. And then, it's interesting, you might remember this, right at the front door of the office as you, as you came in, Bruce or Tim or whoever had, had set up the, this great big white model of the Daly Smith building. I reckon they did it intentionally so that as we were grumbling as the staff, we'd have this reminder of what the end was going to look like and that the end was actually going to make all the mess and the disruption that we were going through worthwhile. I can tell you, when you're up there now, enjoying that new building, I don't remember the noise. Today we come to the end of Ezekiel. It's been an epic ride, hasn't it? And we've covered a lot of uncharted territory. How's it going to end? What, will, what, what kind of taste is, is, is this book going to leave in our mouths? Is, is the end going to make the journey worthwhile? I hope so. <laughs> but we're going to have to wait to find out. If it's your first time with us this morning, I want to start by apologizing. I'm sorry. If, if Ezekiel was like a movie, you've literally just walked in the last five minutes in the cinema before the credits roll. <laughs> the good news is, the first six parts of this story are up on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. We've podcasted the sermons as well, so you can go back and catch them up. But I'd encourage anyone, if you've missed a week somewhere throughout this series, do take the time, go and catch it up. It will be worth your while. If the nation of Israel was like a building, then the whole first half of the book of Ezekiel is like the demolition phase. Things have become so bad with God's people, Right? They become so corrupted, so violent, so idolatrous. The only option left really was a teardown rebuild. For the first half of the book, teardown is exactly what we see happen, isn't it? At the hands of the Babylonian Empire, God reduces his people, his city, even his holy temple to rubble. It's dark. And destructive, and destructive, and it's messy. But it doesn't stay that way. From chapter 33 onwards, almost from the very moment that the city of Jerusalem ends, God's rebuild begins. It's not until the city lay in ruin, until God's people had hit rock bottom and they'd come to realize that he was their only hope. 
You know, when, when, you, when you think about it like that, it's, it's not dissimilar to how it works with us when we come to grab hold of the gospel for the first time, right? It's only once we're sitting in the rubble of our lives, once we've come to realize just how far away we are and just how powerless we are to save ourselves. It's, it's only in the humility of the rubble that our God begins the rebuild of our lives. Israel's rebuild begins in chapter 33. It actually ends up running for the whole rest of the book. And it reaches a crescendo in our passage today as Ezekiel is given yet another vision. It's the third vision of the book. You might remember the book begins with a vision in chapter 1 where Ezekiel, sitting by the Kibar River, watches as God's glory comes rolling in to Babylon on a throne with wheels. In chapter 8, he gets his second vision, and it's a tour of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's become so crowded with all kinds of idolatry and detestable acts that God's glory in that vision abandons the temple. He leaves. His third vision comes to Ezekiel 20 years after his first vision by the Kibar River. 20 years later, he has this third vision and it runs for the last nine chapters of the book. It starts in chapter 40 and runs all the way through to the end. Now, I made the difficult decision for us not to read all nine chapters of that final vision. I hope you can forgive me. But the two parts that we did read from, chapters 43 and 47, they concern the rebuilt temple. We'll have a look at each As we go, there's a temple tour and a temple trickle. Now, chapter 43, I hope you've got it open there in front of you. It drops us actually into the middle of the vision, and it's a climax to a temple tour that Ezekiel has been on since back in chapter 40. Now, let's just say he doesn't breeze through the place like it's an open house inspection. God piles him up with detailed architectural descriptions at every turn. It sounds like this. He brought me to the portico of the temple and measured the jams of the portico. They were five cubits wide on either side. The width of the entrance was 14 cubits and its projecting walls were three cubits wide on either side. Now you can see why we didn't read it. (laughs) It goes for 90 verses. There's 90 verses just like that one. And though it might seem monotonous to us, to God's people in exile, it would have been magnificent. Especially the climax that we did read there in, in, in chapter 43 because God's glory actually comes back and fills the temple. That's what we read, isn't it? That's like the best news ever. God's people had hit rock bottom. They thought he'd abandoned them. They thought that they were done for, finished, pack up, never to go home again. And yet here we see there's proof from God's own prophet that God was going to come back. That God was actually willing to rebuild his relationship with them. I get that we're tempted to kind of flick through the boring details. Guilty as charged. But I guarantee you, an Israelite 
a million miles from home, they would have been hanging on every cubit because their God was coming back. That's the first big thing that the Temple Tour declares. The other big thing is that this God who is coming back is still holy. One commentator I read this week referred to this whole kind of Temple Tour section as theological architecture, which I think is just a great way of putting it because the structure and the floor plan and the measurements, it's all making a theological point. You see, the the absolute precision of these measurements that are given, they reflect the absolute perfection of God's holiness. And not only are the measurements precise, but as Ezekiel takes this tour, it's, it's impossible not to notice how empty the temple is. And that's the exact opposite of what Ezekiel saw the last time. He was in the old temple, right, where it was crowded with so many different kinds of idolatry and images to other gods and incense being offered. This rebuilt temple has none of that. It's like that feeling of sitting in a brand new car. If you've ever had that opportunity. Belle and I, for the first time, bought a new car just a few years ago. Up until then, we'd just been getting around in scratched dented second-handers, but finally we decided to take the plunge. And I still remember driving the car very gingerly out of the dealership for the first time and just marveling at how clean and fresh and new everything was in this car, right? Gone were the little footprints on the backs of the seats. Gone were the texture on the roof, the sand squashed into the mats on the floor, and the the weak old Macca's fries just crammed down the sides of the seats. As Ezekiel gets taken on this tour, I'm sure it had just a new temple smell. And the impact, the impact of this new temple, we're told, is there in verse 10. Take a look. Son of man... God says, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. Be ashamed of their sins. That's interesting, isn't it? Say, for instance, the day after I drove the car out of the dealership, for some strange reason, I decided to get into the car with thick, muddy feet. That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? That'd be a problem. See, all of a sudden, the mud matters more precisely because the car is fresh and clean. (laughs) So too with the rebuilt temple. And you see, for so long, Israel hadn't been ashamed of their sins. That had been the problem, right? They'd forgotten how holy their God was. And over time, they became desensitized to all the sin that they were doing. That can happen to us as well, can't it? If we're not careful. I wonder if you've ever noticed that before, the way we kind of can can grow accustomed to our wayward thoughts or our selfish actions or a sinful way of life until we don't even really notice. Is there an area of your life that's like that at the moment? 
You see, the presence of the holy God does not let Israel simply shrug off their sin. And his holiness doesn't allow us to do that either. Ezekiel's tour of a rebuilt temple makes grand declarations to people in exile. God is coming back and he is holy. You know, that's not all Israel, uh, Ezekiel is treated to in this third and final vision. If he thought watching God's glory return inside the temple was something, then what he sees unfold outside the temple in chapter 47 is nothing short of spectacular. I'm calling it the temple trickle. And I reckon these 12 verses are now actually my favorite part in the whole book. Flick with me forward in your Bibles. I've got them there open. Chapter 47, it's on page 878. If you've got a church Bible, you want to have this open in front of you. As Ezekiel is brought to the entrance of the new temple, he's done his walkthrough, comes outside, he notices there's a trickle of water falling down the front steps. Kind of strange. He decides to follow it. And as he does, he sees the flow grow bigger and stronger. 500 meters, and it's, it's now an ankle-deep stream. He walks 500 more, and it's become a knee-deep creek, then a waist-deep river. Finally, it becomes a torrent that is so deep, so wide, that you can't cross it. I wonder how you'd be feeling if you saw something like that. Reminds me of a video I saw at the start of last year. If you remember when that terrible drought was starting to break. Uh, Up in Tamworth, there were crowds that, that crammed themselves onto a bridge for over an hour waiting for the Peel River to start flowing again. Here's what it looked like. Find this way. Look at it go everywhere. Wow. Why are you coming? Because it rained on them. Go, man. Go. How good is that? Go, man. Go. Water is life. Water is life. And a community that's been ravaged by drought knows that better than anyone. Even a trickle offers hope. So too, the trickle in in chapters 47 offers us hope because there is nothing that can stop the flow of this river. The further it flows, the bigger it grows, You'll see there in verse, in verse 8, it's incredible. As, as this river reaches the Dead Sea, the salty Dead Sea, right? It actually changes, transforms the water fresh and fills it with fish. If you go on to verse 12, you'll see there's fruit trees that line the banks of this river. And these fruit trees are not just heavy laden with fruit, the end of verse 12 there, it says, every month they will bear fruit. That's a lot of fruit. 
I love what it says there in verse 9, the end of verse 9. So where the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, everything will live. What a, what a beautiful image of God's abundance and blessing flowing to the world. The thing about this water, what makes it so special is of course the fact that it comes from God, the source is God's holy presence, the sanctuary where he dwells with his people. I wonder if you see the connection here that's built by these two visions side by side, right? God comes back and he fills the temple with his holiness and his glory and from his filling then comes the flowing. Do you see that? It's as if the abundance and blessing of life can't help but spill out and overflow from God's glory as he comes and resides with his people again. As he comes in, life flows out. That's what happens. And that's how the book of Ezekiel ends. Only in the presence of the holy God can true life be found. That's not just how Ezekiel ends. I think that's the point of Ezekiel, of the whole book. Because what it is they've been doing, they've been looking for life apart from God, hadn't they? On their terms, not on his. And in the end, all they found, all they found was destruction, desolation, death. Because true life is found with God alone. I mean, that's not just the point of Ezekiel, that's the point of everything, of this whole thing. That, I think that's the point. Because we lost true life the moment we left God's presence in the garden. And we've been trying to find our way back to that life ever since. That was one of the reasons God sent his holy son into our world, wasn't it? What did Jesus say? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You think about Jesus, right? He's, he's the perfect example of Ezekiel's river, isn't he? Because wherever God's holy son went, life flowed with a touch. Jairus' daughter came to life with a prayer Five small loaves ended up feeding thousands with a command. Empty nets were filled with the biggest catch they had ever seen. And then with his own death and resurrection, he opened the way for billions to enter God's holy presence. The river didn't stop flowing there though, did it? When God fills the temple of our hearts with his Holy Spirit, what happens? Life flows from us. You know, what began as just a trickle in an upper room on the day of Pentecost, it quickly turned into a torrent, didn't it? A torrent that is still flowing to this day. From a, from a fisherman's first sermon in a Middle Eastern city, 2,000 years ago, the flow of the life-giving gospel has reached even to here in Manly of all places. Only in the presence of a holy God 
can true life be found. That's what Ezekiel sees in his final vision of the river. It's a note of hope and a note of promise for a people who are still in exile. And you know, in one sense, this vision ends up being fulfilled when they eventually do return to the land. And yet in another sense, this final vision also points beyond Ezekiel's time, even beyond our time right now, to a day that is still yet to come. Revelation 22 is the final chapter of the final book in the Bible. And guess what? It ends with a river as well. Here's what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Ezekiel's river. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Same life-giving water, same abundance and blessing, flowing from the same source. The only difference to what we see in Ezekiel is that on this day, at the end of all things... In this new kingdom, our access to God's holy presence is no longer going to be veiled by a temple as it is in Ezekiel, but on that day it's going to be unfiltered. It's going to be face to face. And he will wipe away every tear. And he will heal every wound and scar. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, because we'll finally be living life as it was meant to be lived, in the presence of a holy God. What a day that will be. Endings matter. Surely none more than that one. As we come to the end of our time in the book of Ezekiel, it is worth spending a moment to reflect on where we've been. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I wonder what it is that you now know. How have you come to know him better? Because the truth is there's nothing more important than knowing God rightly, is there? Nothing more important than that. Knowing him, not as we might want him to be, not as we might think that he is, not as what might be convenient for me or comfortable, but knowing him as he truly is. As he has revealed himself to us on the pages of books like Ezekiel. The question is, do you? Do you know him? If you don't, you need to, more than anything else in the world. And if you do, how's that going for you? Of course, I'm not talking about knowing of the Lord. I'm not talking about just knowing things about God, you know, because that's not what it means to know someone, is it? Just to know things about someone. Like say, for instance, you wanted to know the most powerful person in Australia today. You know who that is? 
His Excellency General, the Honourable David Hurley. As Australia's 27th Governor General, he represents the Queen, our Head of State. He can sack the Prime Minister, can't he? And no bill becomes a law in this country without his signature. Now, you could go and find out a bunch of stuff about David Hurley if you wanted to. All you'd have to do is check out his Wikipedia page, right? But even if you memorised every single detail on that page about this man, you would still not walk around claiming to know him, would you? Because you wouldn't. You don't. I went through Bible college with a friend called Caitlin. She could claim to know him because he happens to be her father. She knows him intimately. She knows what his hugs feel like. She knows what his encouragement sounds like. And she knows how unconditional his love is for her by having experienced his patience and his forgiveness. No Wikipedia page is going to tell you any of that, right? Because her knowledge of him comes from a living, breathing, changing, growing relationship. Precisely what God, God wants from each of us. Can you believe it? That we might know him intimately, personally, not just collecting facts about him. He wants us to share our lives with him, to spend this life getting to know him better. I really hope and pray that that's what's happened for you over the course of this series, that you've had a chance to do that in a book you know, that, that most of us had very little clue about before we started. And that's one of the things I really hope we come away from this series with going, you know what, I've got confidence in God's word and in the Old Testament in particular because even though it's strange and weird and hard to understand at points, God's still got something to tell me from this part of his word, something that's worth listening to. Whatever it is for you, how has your knowledge of God grown? What difference will that make? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's the glory and splendor that we saw in chapter one, if you remember that. There's nowhere he cannot be and nothing he cannot see. Or maybe it was the heat from his holiness realizing you need to take the sin in your life more seriously. You need to take it as seriously as he does. Maybe it was the week we were confronted with the Lord who will not tolerate all the fake and false gods that we hoard in our hearts. Or maybe it's thankfulness that God's heart is not crowded when it comes to loving you. Maybe it was marveling at at the Lord who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and the way that he is always more willing to forgive us than we are to ask for it. Or it could be just his relentless passion for life that we've seen over these last two weeks, changing stone hearts to flesh and dry bones to bodies and sending this river of his to the ends of the earth. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What does that look like for you? I'm going to take a few moments right now to actually 
finish this series for ourselves. Find your landing spot. I'm going to give you a few moments. Dave's going to come up and play a song with the band. We're going to stay in our seats and actually just think on this some more. You know, if you want to write a few things down, if you want to spend some time in prayer, if you want to do business with God, take this time to finish the series of Ezekiel for yourselves. I'm going to come back in a moment after this song and I'll close in prayer for it.